You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. For most Australians, this is the first time they have felt a threat to their life and standard of living that's outside their control. And yet we still live in a country that's safe and our children are still protected. But there are many Australians who came to our country fleeing from conflicts and a world we can only imagine. Australians who truly lived a life of fear and struggle. Ayek Shukdang was a member of the Sudanese People's Liberation Army when he was just a boy. And he's written a book about it called The Lost Boy. Today he has his own son and daughter and lives in Brisbane. Hi Ayek, how are you? Uh, good afternoon. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. And thank you for having me on your show. Pleasure. So how are you and your family coping in the current coronavirus lockdown? At the moment, oh, it's, just, it's just me and my baby girl. Yeah, my little girl. So we just stay home. That's about it. There's nothing. I used to go to the park. Yes. That's what I do most <laughs> of the time. And right now, it was on the news yesterday saying that the parks are closed. So I don't know what we're going to do now. Probably just stay at home and just go for a walk and back home. That's about it. So um, what kind of boy were you before you became a child soldier? Well, I was born in a tribe, in Dinka tribe. And uh, I was just a cattle boy. Uh, Dinka is uh, the, the largest tribe in Sudan. So I was born there and I used to look after cattle when I was a kid. And did you get much opportunity to play and learn whilst you were doing that or, or were you pure, just working on the farm? At the early age, you just work on the farm. It's a daily thing, but you play with your mate, with your little friends because, you know, you got a friend. Uh, you know, we used to go and look after the calf while the adult take the big cow to graze a bit further so we just we just around the village, running around the village naked, because that's that's how my people were at the time. What was it like becoming a soldier? What was the what was the training like? And 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 I guess it's everyone takes for granted now that there were child soldiers. But was that just a given that a twelve year old boy was able to train to fight? Oh, the thing is, a lot of you know not every child soldier was forced to join. I volunteer myself. Anyang, the, my trainer, the guy who used to run the child soldiers' prison, uh, the boss of prison, not a trainer, the boss of the prison, he said that uh, some children that he trained, some of them were from 9 to 10. And I'm just thinking, really, my boy is now, you know, nearly that age, and I just can't imagine how this kid would have went through it but they probably went through it like I did because everything that was happening in the training is happening to everyone. So you feel like, uh, okay, this is not bad. I'm not the only one getting beat up every time in the training. Everyone is. So this is just natural. It happened to everyone. And yeah. you were very young, but do you, do you now, looking back, have a sense of how that experience changed you? Oh, I think... What happened to me made me the person I am today. I have learned a lot, and 
appreciate life more than I was when I was a child soldier. I didn't care, you know, especially after I got my gun. When I had my gun in my hand, I was just, I was just like a superman. Anytime anyone say something to me and I don't like it, I just pull my gun on them. That's how I was. Everybody would just look at me, okay, everybody leave them, leave them, leave them. And people would leave me. Ten minutes later, I put my gun down, and I'm back to normal again. So at the same time, you know, my childhood made me very angry, especially it wasn't my family raising me like that. I was raised around the family, but when I was in the rebel, getting trained, getting beat up, anger was in me, but I couldn't get it out until I got my gun. And what made you, in the end, leave the army? I didn't want to leave, for start. My sister got me out. She said, your mum is here at the border of Uganda and Sudan. And I was in this little army camp where we used to bring weapons, because we used to get weapons from Uganda to Sudan, which is at the border, and then we can distribute the weapon to, to the rebel. So my sister knew I was there, so... Because I was with my auntie and her husband, and her husband was a was a captain. He was a he was captain in the rebel. So he said, "Okay, you can go and see your mum." So when I went to see my mum, my sister said, "Okay, you guys are coming to Kenya," and I said, "Oh well, I'm going," because she wanted me to go there and get education. So you and went. You decided it was the right thing to go with them. I thought, "Oh, I'll just go." But when I got there, a few months, because she put me straight to boarding school, and then I didn't fit in, because everybody there talking English, they're doing this and that, and I'm just like, hey, I don't fit in. I'm only useful with people carrying guns. So I left the boarding school after a few months. I went back to her, and I told her, you need to send me back to Sudan. I don't want to be here anymore. Had a big fight with her. The next morning I wake up in the unit. The unit was locked. No one in there. Because, you know, African units, the doors are made with metal bar. Because she knew I was going to leave the next day. So what she did, she wake up, she told all the kids to wake up and leave, go to school, whatever, and then lock me in. <laughs> I wake up, Every door's locked. It's like being in prison. So what I did, I break every glass, every glass of every window. I scream, I got, I cry all day until I stop crying. Three o'clock, she rock up and she look at the house. She was heartbroken. The police came, Kenyan police came. They arrested me. Say, why did you break me? I said, well, I want to go back to Africa, but she can't let me. And she locked me in. If there was fire, if I set fire on that day, I would have died. The neighbors can't get me out because there's a big lock right outside the door, the metal, the metal door. I would have died in the house. And then after that, I was released. And somehow I went to heading toward Somalia because I left her. And then I got arrested along the way, heading to Somalia. And then what happened? And after that... When I was arrested at the border, not even the border, there's a small town called Dabdab within Kenya. It's ran, it's ran by Somalian, and there's a refugee camp there. I was put in prison there for a few months, and then after that, they found out that I was just a refugee, so I was sent to that refugee camp. 
And then my sister found out again I was there. Then she got me back to Nairobi, and that's how I ended up coming to Australia. Did you come to Australia with your sister? Yeah, yeah. So she, most of my family, wow. my brothers, uh, my three, my two brothers, and my two sisters. Your your sister that organised that sounds like a yeah. pretty special lady. Oh yeah, she's she, she she's done so much, not just to my family, to other Africans community, and especially Sudanese. Yeah. She brought a lot of a lot of a Sudanese community to Australia. And, and what was it like for you after all those experiences coming to Australia? How old were you when you arrived here? About eighteen, nineteen. And what was what were your first impressions? Oh. I swear to God, I, I thought this was heaven. Do you know what I mean? Because, you know, like when I was in Kenya, I read a little booklet about Mormon. You know how Mormon, when they come to your house, they give you a little booklet? Yes. And uh, when you open the book, you just see family sitting in the park, kids running around playing, happy, a mother and the father just having a laugh. And then when we came here, we were put next opposite to a park. The park is just down the road, and the same thing that I read in the book that I saw in the Mormon book it was happening. And I was just thinking, this is, this is the heaven. This is what these people talk about. This is what they preach in Africa, and this is it, which is opposite to a park. And the food, oh, my God, <laughs> the way I used to eat. You know, it was like there's no tomorrow. Coming from my tribe, the meat is like a luxury thing. We don't eat it every day. You can only eat meat when there's wedding or when there's funeral or when a cow die from a disease. So we just eat it. And then you come here, the sausages, the steak, or you just name it. One thing I hate was, was what do you call it, uh, that cold meat, ham. Ham. It's, it, it smelled like fish to me. <laughs> you know I mean? And that was the only thing I hate, but now I like ham. <laughs> yeah. All those sort of things. So it was just like, it was like heaven. But one thing that shocked me, the night we came here, we were somewhere in a suburb called Annerley in Brisbane. The next morning when we wake up, I look at the window, there was no one walking. And I'm thinking, where did they put us? They put us into a planet where there's no people? And then my sister said, no. He said, here in this world, people got cars. Because in Africa, when you wake up in the morning around 4 o'clock, people wake up at 4 o'clock and start walking to the maybe shop or black market to sell stuff, people carrying chicken, people walking with their goat to sell, you know, carrying stuff on their head. And you wake up here, you only see one car every now and then going by. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So it was a totally different world to me, you know, a different world, but beautiful. In a way, beautifully, a lot of food, everything, new clothes, we're wearing, everything was there for us. So some people may hear that and think that this was your happily ever after, was it? Yeah, that, that's, that, that's, how, that's how I felt at the time. This is it. This is, uh, this is, I'm just, this is happy ending. Like I'm talking to you right now, but I feel this happy ending to me because... I lost a lot of friends. Some of them, one of my best friends, a guy I was trained with, a guy I used to escape with, his name was Daniel. Uh, he, he committed suicide in 2002. Do you know what I mean? And other children that I was trained with, some of them got killed in the war. 
So to me, this is the best happy ending ever. But you still, you still had trauma from your experiences. How did they resurface once you were here? Well, the first year I was all right. I was just trying to settle in. You know, just settling in. I go to school, I put my uniform on, I'll go with my brothers and my cousin, Ruben, we go to school. At the end, we play basketball, then go home and then cook again and meet, meet after meet. And every time you got to eat meat, of course, you got to cut it. And after a year, or maybe just say nine months, every time my sister tell me, I think it's your turn, you got to cook, a, you got to cook us a lamb stew uh, with lentil, because that was our favorite. At first, I had start having nightmares. The dream, like I've been shot, or I'm rotten, or I'm getting buried. And sometimes I have to struggle to open my eyes. And once I open my eye, then I know, no, I'm not dead, I'm, I'm all right. And I forget about it and go to school. And then when I start cutting meat, the nightmares turn into day, to, into, into a daydream, like into reality. So whenever I'm trying to cut meat, I just felt like, oh, every time I put the knife into the lamb or this, whatever meat in front of me, I felt like I was cutting my nephew and nieces. You know, that's my mind. That this little thing will tell me in the head. You're just cutting through these now. Think of your nephew and nieces next door. It's like you're cutting through them. So there was voices in my head. So what I start doing, every time there's voice in my head, I'll just stick the knife in the middle of the stake and run to the park, to the heaven park, to the moment park. And then two minutes later, my nephew and nieces will come running around with their white friends because they were kids. They were easy to fit in. They got friends next door, like, you know, five, six, seven years old. They're playing around even though they don't understand each other, but they're running around. And I'll be sitting there in the park thinking, how do they do it? How do these kids do it? Make friends. And I don't have friends, you know. So it was hard, but at the same time, you know, I was trying to fit in. What was it like becoming a parent yourself? Oh, the first time, you know, when my little boy came, you know, it was the time I was misdiagnosed because I, I was misdiagnosed in 2002. I was given uh, a schizophrenia instead of post-traumatic stress disorder from 2002 to 2010. Wow. But my little boy was born in 2006. So when he was born, I was in hospital, you know. When the mother was pregnant, I was still there, but I was, I was taking my prescription. I was taking my drugs at the same time. So I wasn't 100% functioning because every time I used to take them, I'd go drowsy. I'd go numb. And I just said, okay, I just got to follow what the psychiatrist told me. I'll get better. I'll get better. But never got better. So when my little boy was born, I was in hospital and, uh, you know, I wouldn't say, you know, you ask someone when, the, when they're pregnant, oh, I love my baby, I can't wait until it come out. It's the saying. But I feel like me as a father now, I think love Bill. When he was born, you know, the love wasn't as strong as it is now. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it wasn't. I just, yeah, that's my boy. Yeah, I love him. I can say that. 
but it didn't build. It didn't build much. Because if anything happened to him at the same time when he was kid, okay, I'd be still hurt, but the love wasn't as strong as it is right now. So how did they correct your diagnosis from schizophrenia to post-traumatic stress disorder? Because in 2010, I stopped taking medication. And when I stopped, I couldn't. I couldn't sleep, honestly, for months. I, I used to even cry. Please, God, give me one hour, just one hour to sleep. Because it was so hard that because my body, I felt like I used to shake. Because I've been taking them for about eight years. And, then, and now I just stop cold turkey. So my brain is, my body can be so numb like it's dead. But the brain is just waiting for that tablet and a drop of water. And it will just melt into my body, then I'll go to sleep. But I refuse to go to sleep. After a few months, I went in, so saw my GP. And then she said, no, I just got to keep taking your medication. And I say, no, I want to see this, the psychiatrist again. Because back then, I moved from the Gawkers to here. So I didn't have any psychiatrist to see. So, And then she referred me to another psychiatrist. And then the guy found out that, oh, you're not suffering from that. You've been suffering from a post-traumatic stress disorder. And I was like, I was like, really? Really? So all these years, eight years, I've been taking medication. So I didn't have that. They say no. Yeah, and, and that was it. But it took me three to four years to be able to sleep again. Everyone's past impacts on the way they parent, whether they try to avoid things that happen to them or whether they love something that happened to them and they try to recreate it. How has your past affected the way you look after your children today? The thing is, when my little boy came, I felt like I am living my childhood again, not at his early age, especially when he was four or five. So he'll do a silly thing I'll do with him. And then it becomes 8, 9, 10, and we play all the time. I felt like I was reliving my life again because the thing that I missed out in in that age, I'm, I'm reliving it again. I'm doing it through him. And it is, it is, because when I was in the rebel, everything is orders. You go and do this, you do this, you do this. You don't play. You don't do anything. But when my child reached certain age, after he reached certain age, I was able to relive my life through him to this moment now. We wrestle. He does silly stuff because he's a nosy. <laughs> and he's, he's a funny little kid, you know? So he'll say something to me and, and I'll say it back. And all these sort of things. He'll come and fart in front of me, all these little <laughs> stupid things. You know, that's, you know what I mean? Like in Dinka, you don't do that. Mm-hmm. You, you never do that. But Aussie kid, they do it. Yeah, so I'm learning a lot from them. And what about becoming a parent the second time with your little girl? I mean, the first time you're, when your son was born, as you mentioned, you were misdiagnosed with schizophrenia. You were on really serious drugs that clouded your experience of the world what was it like becoming a parent the second time without that influence or becoming a parent the second time i think it was hard 
because this time I was the mother and the father myself. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the child was only given to me when she was only eight days old. And where, where, where do I start? Where do I start? It was hard. But on the day when the, when the baby was given to me, there was people from hospital. There were nurses from hospital. You know, and there was uh, people from child safety. And I'm there. Say, okay, this is your child. The mother have some uh, mental issues. She can't have the baby. Are you going to have the baby or not? Because if you can't, we have to find a family for the child. It took me half an hour to make up my mind. After half an hour, I said, yeah, I'll take care of her. You know, and then I rang my mother. Because my mother, she's in, she's probably 80. Mm-hmm. She's born in a tribe, so we don't know the date of birth. But her age, she should feel like she's in her 80s. I said, Mom, I have a child here. It's my baby, but if I don't have it, they're going to give it to another family. My mom said, you know that I'm old, but I can take care of the baby during the day. But at night time, I can't because she was on a wheelchair. And to get up and get on the wheelchair to go to the baby's room, to get the baby out of the pram and feed the baby's heart. It'll be hard for her. I said, I'll just give it, let me keep, let me try for a few months. After two months with baby with me, I couldn't sleep because she was waking up every hour. <laughs> you know what I did after two months? I went to my church. And standing in front of the whole church, introducing myself to everyone, new people, and introduce my baby, and I told them, I'm the mother and the father. And you know what happened? Women were crying in church because I just dropped into tears. Like, And after the service, a few ladies came up. One of them said, I'll go and take care of her now so you can go and sleep for a few days. And then after that, we can do the adoption papers. I'm happy to take care of your daughter. And I said, okay. I went home. I slept for three days in a row. Wow. You know, I swear. All I do, I just get up, eat, and if she hour and go back to sleep. And then within that three days, I thought about it a lot. I was raised without a father because my father was killed at the start of the war. You know, and I just thought, oh, and if this baby, I'm going to give her away. She's just going to be like me, not knowing her father so what I did I went back to that lady I said oh let me just have the baby for a few more weeks and I see how I go if and after that if I see that I can't do then I'll we do the paperwork then you can have the child and then when I took the baby back home I, I just felt like I was just fitting in you know I'm learning every single day changing the nappies when she cried in the middle of the night I get up go to her Get her out. Sometimes I used to put her in the car and go for a drive because I used to feel like she's making noise to the neighbors. So I put her on her babies in the car and I go around the block and come home. I did that. And there was a time her mother was there, but her mother had a lot of issues that I couldn't, you know, let her all the time. You know? So, yeah, and now she's a 16-month-old baby. She's a big girl. I bet she's a handful, particularly in lockdown. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, she, you know, she, 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 she's learning a lot. She, the, the first word she knows is no. 
That's the first word, and I was just so happy. Because at daycare, I got told that we don't teach them the word no. No, let's not. They don't say no. They just say, okay, let's play with this one and leave that one. I say, no, you have to tell her no. Because that's what I'm teaching her at home. When she says, no, don't touch it. No, don't touch it. So the first word is going to be no, which is good. (laughs) Which is good for me. Well, uh, you, you have such an incredible story and um, are doing such an amazing job with your daughter now. Thank you so much for taking out the time to speak with us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Vaughn. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on your show. That was Ayik Shutdeng. He is the author of The Lost Boy. We'll put links in the notes of this episode for how you can get a copy of his book. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.